0: Good morning, East Point. It's great to be with you. For those who don't know me, my name is John Perine. I'm the son-in-law of Gary and Pauline, Irvine, and it's just great to be with you this morning. I have been praying for you. I know this has been a heavy and hard season for many, and I'm just excited to be having a chance to come to you with the Word of God. Have you ever noticed that all our favorite stories tend to center around orphans? Disney tales are full of them. We've got Aladdin, Lion King, Frozen. Most recently, the Star Wars franchise made over two billion dollars telling yet another orphan story, this time about Rey. But what about superhero and fantasies? Peter Parker, Bruce Wayne, Tony Stark, all orphans. Or of course, the best-selling book series of all time that's going to start on one cold night with a baby with a lightning-shaped scar on his forehead who's dropped off at his aunt and uncle's. Why is it that we're so drawn to stories about orphans? When you think about it, orphans are isolated. They're vulnerable and alone. They constantly struggle with loneliness and have major doubts about their identity. If they don't have a family, who are they really? What status do they have? Where will they look to for help with no family to call their own? The struggle of the orphan is often the very reason why they set out on a quest in the first place. They're hoping to discover who they really are and what difference they might make in the world. We, of course, love these stories because on some level, we all sense the orphan struggle to be our struggle. Who are we really? Who will look out for our needs in an hour of crisis? What difference will our lives make in this world? I chose our text this morning, Romans 8, 14 to 17, with our current pandemic in mind. Many of us are struggling with loneliness. We're disconnected from our families. We're disconnected from our friends. We're disconnected from our church. Paul understands what it's like to feel this orphan struggle, that bewildering sense that we're all alone in the world. The church he was writing to in Rome was struggling with the same kinds of questions. Who are we really in God's plan and purpose? With some being Jewish and some being Gentile, what was their status in relationship to each other? Who could they look to for security in their times of need? And what sort of inheritance did they have in God's kingdom? Thankfully for the church in Rome, Paul has good news. So if you have a Bible this morning, why don't you open with me to Romans chapter eight, and we're gonna look at verses 14 to 15. So this is what they say. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. First note to make is Paul's reminder to his Jewish audience about their former slavery in Egypt. Here's what happened. The Israelites went to Egypt in a time of great need, there was a famine in their land, and under Joseph's stewardship, Egypt had stored up all this grain. So the Israelites following their great need went and lived in the land of Egypt. However, what started out as something good quickly became a master. Instead of finding the security status or an inheritance that the people were longing for in Egypt, Israel instead became enslaved. This often happens to the orphan. We set out on a quest looking for real needs, yet in our desperation to find those needs, they instead quite often become our masters. One great example of this comes to us in Charles Dickens' famous novel, Oliver Twist, really one of the classic stories about an orphan. If you recall, Oliver is orphaned at birth by a father who has mysteriously disappeared and a mother who died giving birth to him. Raised in a workhouse with little food and no comforts until he's nine, Oliver is then put to work in a factory, is passed from family to family before he finally runs off to the city of London to find a better future. Yet, Innocent and trusting, Oliver gets all in a twist because he's told by a pickpocket he meets to seek out a gentleman in the city. Oliver is told this man will give him lodgings for nothing and never ask for change. This, of course, is what Oliver has been looking for. This is exactly what Oliver needs, just a little bit of security, a little bit of status, a place to call his home. Exceedingly grateful for the promise of such assistance, Oliver's gonna fall in with the notorious Fagin and his gang of other orphan children. Unaware that their business, they tell him, of making wallets and handkerchiefs is actually an elaborate pickpocket ring. Isn't this the great deception of all orphans? Fagin extends this simple offer of shelter. Oliver thinks he's getting lodgings and a home over his head. This is good, this is something Oliver needs. Yet with just a small promise of shelter, Oliver becomes enslaved. He's now trapped in this gang of orphans, this pickpocketing gang who are simply there to line Fagin's wallet. And the worst part is that once Oliver falls in with Fagin, he can never escape. As the story goes on, Oliver will try to leave the gang and join new families, but Fagan's always there, reminding Oliver of the gang he can now never leave. This can happen with whatever good tempts you most. Maybe the good you look for in your orphan state is a job that will offer you status. Maybe a role that gives you some sort of security and yet begins to consume endless hours of your week. Maybe for you, the security you're looking for is a group of friends, the relationships that you're just longing to get back to normal. Yet much like Fagan's gang, they extend this hand of belonging, comfort, and security yet in the end, they become your master. Or perhaps far worse still, the simple comfort you're looking for as an orphan, just that need to feel okay, to be settled and safe, starts to become a repeated addiction. Maybe it's food, maybe it's sweets, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's pornography. Paul is going to call this a spirit of slavery. The sense that the real needs that we have in our orphan state actually can become our masters. This is why a spirit of slavery is always going to lead us to fear. During this pandemic, it could be the fear that your job won't be waiting for you when furlough runs out. I know I've talked to a lot of people who are struggling right now with their jobs, trying desperately to control their futures, yet finding themselves trapped in this spirit of slavery that leads to fear. Or for others of us, with this much time at home, it can begin to become the relationships in our lives that start falling apart. Relationships with family that are now strained. Relationships with friends. Relationships with food. Relationships with our own bodies. What begins as a simple orphan need for comfort now looks more and more like that addiction you can't control. But here's the thing about goods that become our masters. We always live in fear of them. If you think about it, if your job is your master, you're always going to be afraid of letting your job down. Or worse, that when you finally get back to your job, when you work hard at your job, when success finally comes to you again, you're going to look back and realize that your job was a master that never really cared for you. Your master has let you down. If comfort or relationships or food or drink are your master, you're always going to feel like you aren't comforted enough. And yet after the drink fades, after your stomach becomes hungry again, you'll always find yourself needing another. This is the spirit of slavery, Paul says, leads to fear. It doesn't matter what our master is. Eventually we fear that either we will let our master down, or worse, that after having served our master, our master will let us down. So where do we turn as orphans Struggling to survive in a world that so persistently wants to enslave us with a spirit of fear. Well, Paul, like I said, has some incredibly good news. Turn back with me to the passage in your Bible. This is the second half of verse 15. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's no way really to overstate how breathtaking this claim would have been to Paul's Roman audience. In the Roman world, social standing was determined by who your father was. Your father indicated what office you could run for, what job you would have, who you could marry, what friendship groups or social status you could run in, and what land you would eventually receive. Therefore, whatever family you were born into, that was it. You were under the control and authority of your father and the status, security, and inheritance you had were all determined by who your family was. As you can imagine then, it was a major deal to be adopted into another family because you were quite literally passing from the control of one family to another. This wasn't just a means of social welfare. This was actually a way to advance in society If you had several sons, it might be necessary for one of those sons to be adopted by another family, since only the oldest would have access to the largest piece of inheritance. This would even go all the way to the top offices of government. In fact, all emperors of Rome, such as Augustus to Julius Caesar, would have to be adopted by the previous emperor in order to receive the full status and standing of their office. So here's what would happen in a roman adoption ceremony first the two families would meet and then they'd work out all the arrangements how much was it going to cost for the child to be adopted how much inheritance was the adopted child being offered then i find this next part really interesting a symbolic act would occur they'd bring in a scale they'd weigh out a set amount of copper and two times the new father would weigh out this amount of copper on a scale and offer it as payment to the biological father in order to adopt his son. The first two times, the biological father would take the copper, but then buy back the son. Yet on the third offer, the exchange would finally be accepted and the adoption would be seen as legally binding. So after this exchange occurred, the new father would then go to the local magistrate would demonstrate that a legal and binding adoption had indeed occurred, and when the case was presented, the magistrate would make a public declaration that went something like this. An adoption has occurred. This son is now legally and socially fully recognized as a member of this new family, with all the status, security, and inheritance that this family possesses. Do you see why Paul finds adoption to be such a breathtaking reality in the gospel. Why, Paul can't stop talking about it. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. All of us, men and women, have been brought into the full standing of the family of God. There we were, enslaved to sin as our master, but in Jesus Christ, God would ransom us from the power of sin. The power of that master's rule over us. And here the images begin to sing. Do you see them? We're bought by the blood of Jesus. God is going to offer his own son as a substitute. What Martin Luther would call the glorious exchange. Yet even more. Because we are now in Christ Christ. We are justified, that is declared righteous, as daughters and sons. The exchange has occurred. We have been adopted into the family of God. Paul can't seem to stop talking about it. Adoption is going to become one of the central unifying themes in his letters, of how to describe salvation itself. Galatians 4, 4-5 to is going to say, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul will shout it out again in Ephesians 1 to 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. I mean, it's almost like Paul was telling everyone he, had, he would meet. We have become part of God's family. You're now a son, a daughter of God. Imagine the relief for the orphan hearing this good news. Imagine Oliver Twist laundering the streets, looking for more. What Paul is saying is that in Jesus Christ, all of us, now have not only become sons and daughters to someone of noble birth or of a good family, but we've become sons and daughters of God himself. We are now the beloved children of God. We finally have a home. As we look at the rest of this passage, I want to walk out what three clear privileges are that Paul is going to unpack for us. It's like adoption is such good news. Paul wants us to see as clearly as possible that we've got everything that God's family has to offer. So why don't you look back for me again at the second half of verse 15. Second half of verse 15 is going to say this. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Then it's going to say, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the first privilege we receive through our adoption is status, the privilege of status. Think about the difference between having status and not having status. I feel my own status every time I join a party. Have you ever notice status at parties? A party is a very different experience when you're hosting the party than when you're the friend of a friend and you only happen to know one person and you just barely got invited. Recently, my wife and I were invited to a dinner party. We thought it'd be great. We assumed we'd know lots of people, but when we got there, we realized the only couple we knew were the hosts who had invited us. And worse, the hosts were already seated at the head of the table, fully engaged in conversation. No one greeted us. Everybody else was already talking to each other. I mean, no one even looked our way as we walked into the room. So we just sort of slunked in, out of the way, and uncomfortably tried to find a spot to sit down. Contrast the status of a friend to that of a daughter or of a son. I love getting to watch young children with their parents when the parents are trying to host. Even though the parent is fully engaged in conversation, all of a sudden a child runs in, tugs on the parent's arm, and every time the father will smile and then normally lean over and is going to listen as the daughter on her tiptoes, will lean up to whisper in his ear. The daughter has access to her father whenever she wants it. The father would drop everything to listen to his daughter, even if all these other needs are around him. The Paul is going even further when he tells us that we can make the cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word of deep familiarity and intimacy. Abba is really the word that you would use to cry out to your daddy or your papa. There's no formality in it. If you read scholars on this, they actually all wrestle with the question, where is Paul getting Abba from? Because here's the thing. No one ever used Abba as a term to describe God in any ancient religion. It just doesn't show up. Greeks might refer to Zeus as the father of the living, but they never address him in prayer as father, let alone as Abba, Daddy. The Egyptians couldn't even refer to God as father. No God in Egyptian culture would ever be given a sense of familiarity or family. All the Egyptian gods were formal, stiff titles, distant and removed from the people crying out to them. There was, of course, one religious tradition that would describe God as father, And that was the Jewish people. But even in all of the Old Testament, no one ever dares to refer to God as their Abba. It simply doesn't happen. So where would Paul be getting such a bold idea from? The answer is that outside of Paul's writing, there's only one other place we have in all the Bible and really in any ancient religion of a person referring to God as their Abba. And it's going to come in Mark 14, when Jesus is alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the moment of his deepest distress, where his anguish is going to cause his sweat to drip with drops of blood, we find these words on Jesus's lips. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. Jesus cries out, Abba, the cry of the daughter, the cry of the son. It's the cry of the one who used to be an orphan and now has been invited with status to approach the ear of their papa, their daddy, and know that their father is listening. This is our first privilege of adoption. Let's go ahead and look at the second in verse 16. Verse 16 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If the adopted orphan has status, the second privilege of our adoption is that we now have security in God's family. Paul's going to describe the security of being daughters and sons as this ongoing process, one in which the Spirit of God is constantly bearing witness to our spirit. That we are children of God. Isn't that an amazing offer? Not only is this a one and done thing, but it's like the Spirit's gonna constantly be there as a witness to offer us testimony when we are unsure, when we doubt that ceremony that took place that made us adopted as daughters and sons. As I've been sitting with this verse, I find myself asking why? Why would we need the Spirit of God to constantly be testifying? Why is it that this process would be so strenuous and ongoing? I think the answer is because, quite simply put, it's hard being adopted. It's challenging being brought in late to a family as a daughter and as a son. There's this really great sort of underrated movie that came out a year ago called Instant Family. had Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byron in it. The movie was about the struggle involved of adopting three siblings into this family, just two parents. There certainly were struggles for the characters played by Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byron. They start with this beautiful house. They have all of these quiet nights of sleep. They're hosting these beautiful meals with pleasant adult conversations. And then after they adopt these three siblings, aged four, six, and 15, their house is blown up over and over again. They have to face their kids wanting to reject them. They will cook them beautiful meals and yet the children don't want to eat at the table. They go to enforce basic boundaries and rules that they have standing are simply refused by all three adopted children. They try to create these fun family games and rituals and customs like this poignant scene at Christmas and instead, every time they do, the kids keep blowing it up. Yet if it's hard for parents of an adoption, the movie does a great job of capturing that it's so much harder for the children. The youngest child, age four, would scream in terror through the night, afraid that her siblings would be gone the next morning. The six-year-old would flinch every time that his adopted father would step in to give him a hug. And inevitably the teenager, the 15-year-old, tries to run away. Because for orphans, one of the great struggles is that you get so used to people letting you down, failing you, causing you harm, that the very parents who want to love you and bring you in, those are the parents that you find yourself running from. So Paul is going to say the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You hear the mercy in this verse, the tenderness of God. He knows where you've been. He knows how hard it is to become part of a new family, to adopt new customs, to follow the rules of the household, find yourself sitting and eating a meal at a family table that you've never been forced to sit and stay through before. Yet the whole time, God tells us that the spirit is going to be there, bearing witness with your spirit. It's all right, my child. I know how badly you want to run, but you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. Isn't this the security we need in the midst of our current pandemic? The very security that would allow us to put away our fear, to walk away from other masters who are trying to enslave us. This is what I've been praying for you this week, dear Church of East Point that you would be able to hear the Spirit of God testify to your spirit that you are beloved children, that that job you've spent so much time worrying about is also known by a father who loves you, a father who promises to meet all your needs, that that deep sense of loneliness you have right now as you're feeling disconnected from friends, disconnected from family, it's a loneliness that the Spirit of God wants to fill that even those other comforts, those other masters who are always going to leave you empty, that God is the only father who's loved you so much that he would exchange his son for you. So I wonder, have you been able to hear God's spirit testify with your spirit of the security you have in Jesus Christ? That's the second privilege of our adoption. Now, I want to close with our third and final, the privilege of inheritance. This is from verse 17. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the final privilege we receive in our adoption is that of an inheritance. Though Paul will surprise us here, he doesn't pull any punches. So far, all the privileges of our adoption, our new status, and our security have been offered as a comfort to us. But Paul is going to follow the rights of Roman adoption to the very end. If we are now sons and daughters, we are heirs to everything. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is, of course, on the surface, wonderful news. In Ephesians, Paul's going to say, Blessed be God, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places." It's like a father saying, everything I have is yours. Everything in all of the heavenly places are being shared with you. I mean, this is the joy of the orphan, like Rey in the Star Wars movie, realizing that she does in fact have the mysterious powers of the Force. Or this is like Harry Potter being told, you're a wizard. This is Oliver in Oliver Twist, who after the long journey of searching, finally is going to be brought into the wealth and safety and comfort of Mr. Brownlow's home. It's the incredible inheritance every orphan could only dream of having. All of God's heavenly blessings have been given to us in Jesus Christ. There's nothing we shall want. There's no riches that will be held back. The fullness of eternal life is offered to us. Yet, Paul does offer a phrase that should make us pause. Paul tells us that we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. But then he says to be truly heirs, we must walk with Jesus, the beloved Son, in the way of suffering if we we're to be glorified. It's so easy to get stuck on this point or to miss it altogether. I think for those of us who really connect to the loneliness of the orphan, who have experienced what it's like to live as an orphan, this actually is a really hard inheritance to hold. We thought that when we became part of God's family, we'd be safe. But a life lived for Christ is not safe. There will be suffering. We must suffer if we're going to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. We must suffer if we're to receive the full blessing of Christ. It's like C.S. Lewis said of Aslan, The Chronicles of Narnia, when Lucy asks, oh, I should be quite nervous meeting a lion. Is he safe? Mr. Beaver would respond, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. We want adoption into God's family to be safe. Of course we want following God to be safe. It's one of those great longings of any orphan. It's one of our great human needs. But like Oliver, if our main priority is safety, we will inevitably find ourselves back in the spirit of slavery led by fear. As we follow God through this pandemic, for some of us, the thing we're longing most for is an assurance of our safety. And the apostle Paul can't offer us that. But when it comes to following Jesus, Paul would say something like, who said anything about safety? Yet the words of Paul are not without hope. Instead, Paul wants to reframe our suffering. We no longer suffer as orphans. You and I have not been abandoned. For as much as we resonate with the story of orphans in Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into a new family. Though this family may not always be safe, it is good. Our suffering naturally scares us. It reminds us of what it was like to once live in our orphan state, yet we have been freed from a spirit of fear. You and I are now sons and daughters of God. We are adopted into God's family. So I wanna close by offering you a prayer that you can use this week. Whenever you feel yourself filling again with fear, whenever you sense yourself being drawn back to those old masters, the ones that beckon orphans with comfort and try to enslave you in your orphan state, I wanna invite you to use the prayer of a son and of a daughter. The prayer simply goes, Abba, Father. Whenever you're feeling concerned about the coronavirus, you can slow down and pray, Abba, Father. When you're feeling anxious about your job, Abba, Father. When you're tempted to return, to an addiction or to an old comfort, Abba, Father. When you experience suffering and pain, and that suffering floods you again with your orphaned sense of fear, close your eyes and start your prayer, Abba, Father. This is the prayer of Jesus. It's the prayer he too prayed in the Garden of Suffering. It's the prayer of a son and a daughter You have not been orphaned and you are not alone, but you have been adopted as a child of God.